In this episode of the O'Reilly Data Show, I spoke with MC Stravas, co-founder of MapR and currently chief architect for data at Uber. In fact, when we had this conversation, Stravas was still at MapR and uh, he has now moved on to Uber. We discussed his long career in data management and his experience building a variety of distributed systems. In the course of his career, Srivas has architected key components that now comprise many data platforms, including a distributed file system, database, query engine, and a messaging system. As Srivas is quick to point out, for these systems to be widely deployed in the enterprise, they require features like security, disaster recovery, and support for multiple data centers. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here with my friend, MC Srivans, or Srivans, as he's known in the data community. He is the Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of MapR. Welcome to the Data Show. Thank you, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me. So first, I think I want to introduce you to our audience. I looked up a little bit about your background, and it seems like you've been in this infrastructure space for a long time. I mean, uh, uh, set aside the stuff you did at Google, but uh, even the things you did prior to Google are quite relevant to what you're doing now, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so if I go look at my background going back, at Google, of course, ran uh, one of the largest search engines in the world. But uh, before Google, I was uh, chief architect at a company called Clinical Networks which was a scale-out clustered uh, NFS uh, appliance, NetApp acquired that company. And now the flagship product from NetApp is that scale-out uh, appliance that we built at Spinnaker Networks. Prior to that, I was also, I ran the Andrew File System team at uh, Pittsburgh uh, that came out of Carnegie Mellon uh, in a company called Transarc. Transarc was acquired by IBM. But the Andrew File System really pioneered uh, in the 1990s how to do distributed file systems and at very large scale, really at global scale. So this is, so doing Hadoop now is kind of uh, a continuation of the same, um, my, my interest, which is uh, very large scale distributed systems. So at Google, you also had uh, the experience of running some of the infrastructure that powered uh, many of the popular products, right? So you, I, I'm, assume, I'm assuming that the, while you were there, you worked on uh, you had uh, access to things like Bigtable, GFS, and MapReduce. That's right. So in Google, what I did was uh, we ran what we call, uh, I was a part of the organic search team. So uh, our, the core search, which is used by ads, used by, you know, um, uh, of course, the main search used by images, by you know, video, by uh, books, by maps, and by everything else. And uh, as part of the search, I mean, search itself uh, depended very heavily on the kind of data that came in and to intelligently analyze and uh, prepare the data so that the search results could be surfaced very quickly. And the key technology there, technologies, there were GFS, MapReduce, Bigtable, and a bunch of other things. But yeah, these three are, uh, I think, uh, very, very well known. So, uh, so, if, uh, so for people who don't follow the search closely, what was uh, what did the uh, previous generation search companies use? So previously, if you look at Inktomi and uh, other things, they started off using uh, or AltaVista and so on. They started started off using MySQL and a simple database wow. to prepare the <laughs> search indexes. Wow. Yeah, and then uh, I think there was a small evolution beyond that to help with the crawling. So there was this product called Nutch that oh, right, uh, I think right. Yahoo used. 
Uh, that's to really to help with the crawling. Uh, it wasn't really to prepare the indexes. But again, that had scaling problems beyond like four servers or five servers. Uh, so when Go and Google's real secret sauce was uh, they understood the scale problem. And the, I think really came out of research in Stanford that Larry Page and uh, Sergey Brin did on, on how to uh, link back and uh, show which pages are more relevant compared to other pages for a search. And so it was a real reverse tree walk of the web that they had to do. And then they realized early on that infrastructure was key to making this all work at scale. Uh, absolutely. So what was the year, what year was MapR founded? So MapR was conceived, uh, of course, but founded in 2009, uh, in July of 2009. Uh, and, so by uh, this time, there was already uh, very, very early Hadoop. Yes, Hadoop was actually... Uh, popular in uh, a few companies. You know, Facebook at that time was a smaller company, maybe about a thousand people, uh, maybe smaller than that. But they were using, you know, they began to start using Hadoop pretty uh, heavily. Twitter had just started, I think, two years earlier. And so Twitter was also using Hadoop pretty heavily. There was a lot of other social networking companies like MySpace, Orkut, uh, and even Ning. And uh, you know, these are all very, very heavy Hadoop users. And uh, being in Google, we were kind of a bit worried that, you know, did, uh, did we let the cat out of the bag? That is, you know, Hadoop was based on uh, a lot of the technologies that Google had invented. Uh, and of course, uh, before I forget, Yahoo. Yahoo was using Hadoop in a very big way. Uh, in fact, Yahoo pioneered Hadoop and very generously made Hadoop available in open source. Netflix was starting up then and so on. And the uh, cell phone had just been invented. I mean, the, the, not the cell phone, but the smartphone. Uh, Android and uh, iOS had come out in 2007 and were getting popular in 2009 because the instruments were finally getting cheap and affordable. So it kind of was a complete confluence of various forces. And I looked at it and, hey, and I said, hey, what, what do we need in the back end? Because I'm an infrastructure guy. And I said, what should the new data center look like to support this kind of data? Right? So if you really step back and look at it, it's a once in a 30 year replatforming happening of the data center, right? So like you pointed out, what were they using before? Like you said, right? Earlier, Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, I so guess, I guess uh, part of my question is uh, when you looked at this, why was, uh, uh, why not uh, just build on top of a dupe? Yeah. So uh, very good, uh, very good question. We, we checked out Hadoop while I was in Google and uh, also I knew you know, some of the top uh, Hadoop engineers that were at Yahoo and Facebook spent some time with them and they said, yeah, it's great when it works, but uh, it needs to, you know, we need a lot of engineering to keep it up and running. And uh, so I thought maybe that here's an opportunity. I said, well, you know, Facebook and, Go and Yahoo can afford a lot of engineers, uh, but the rest of the world, right. uh, they need to have the same abilities as Hadoop and, uh, sorry, as Yahoo and uh, Facebook and Google. Because pretty soon everything will be data dependent. But that's interesting. That, yeah, that's interesting because basically that's carried on to this day. That philosophy that you that you just described for map art, right? As far as as I can tell from afar. Yeah. So that our our aim was really to bring the power of Hadoop to the masses, right? And to do so, we have to make it very stable, very robust. You don't need a massive engineering staff to be able to build it and support it. You need to be able to run it like you run an Oracle or a NetApp or something, almost like an appliance. 
Uh, By the way, for the, uh, for our non-technical audience, what is the relationship between MapR technologies and Hadoop? A very good question. So Hadoop is an open source. Uh, actually, Hadoop is not a single project. It's a collection of many projects, almost as many as 30 projects right now. And these are all built by different companies and different collaborators, and they put this out there uh, in the open source. And uh, this has to be then integrated and ma made to work together, all these different 30 projects. At its core, there are two or three main things. There's a file system called the Hadoop Distributed File System. And, uh, and then there's a MapReduce engine that actually does the core shuffle and uh, data processing. And then there's a scheduler that schedules things on a large cluster called Yarn. And uh, what MapR provides is we replaced the Hadoop distributed file system with uh, our own version called the MapR file system. But the rest of the Hadoop components are, are those 30-odd components are exactly the same, whether it's from MapR or from any of uh, the other Hadoop distributions. So a company that's considering or is already using Hadoop or MapR can uh, swap vice versa? Yes, uh, yes, yes. So because uh, MapR does not have any API, there is no, nothing called a MapR API. There is no, the, all the APIs in MapR are, are Hadoop APIs. So Hadoop from MapR is identical to Hadoop from Cloudera or Hortonworks or Apache. Um, from an API perspective, it's identical, right? So you can take a program and run it directly on MapR, maybe build it on MapR and run it directly on Hortonworks. Or you can take a tool that runs on or that uses... Uh, yeah, any tool, yeah. HDFS and... Okay. Um, so early on, you know, I mean, uh, when MapR came out, a, lo a lot of my data engineering friends who I respected really liked the technology and started using it, right, in places Hadoop. Because at that time, I think, uh, as you pointed out, it was early days for Hadoop. It was hard to run it and uh, get it stable. So a lot of people were turning to MapR. So um, how come MapR is not open source? <laughs> So uh, MapR's technology is, um, I think, amazingly good, right? It's amazingly good. I'll give you some numbers to kind of give you the idea of how good it really is. Um, from a single server performance perspective, a MapR server can drive about 10 gigabytes a second. Like this, uh, MapR is completely software, not right. hardware. But if you're given the right hardware, uh, MapR, a single server in MapR can drive over 10 gigabytes a second. For comparison, HDFS, which is the Hadoop file system, can drive about 500 megabytes a second. So 20x performance difference. Right. The Hadoop file system gets saturated. But that doesn't completely answer the question which you're asking. If I look at the other companies out there, even the industry leaders in file system, uh, companies like NetApp or uh, Isilon, EMC Isilon, and EMC Isilon does about 1 gigabyte a second. NetApp is doing 10. Uh, NetApp can do about 3 gigabytes a second, top of the line NetApp. On top of the line uh, EMC Isilon, right? Uh, EMC Isilon top of the line can do one. Top of the line NetApp can do about three. MapR does about 10. There's a significant, significant advantage even across those platforms. So they would be very eager to take our technology and undercut us. Right? Right. So the main reason for keeping it private is, you know, we, that is how we do our, that's how we make money, right? That's our business. Right. And we don't want other companies to take that technology uh, and drive us out. So it's a very simple reason. So very early on, I guess you probably, uh, because you came from such a deep storage background, you kind of looked at the storage landscape and realized uh, if we built uh, a file system that's kind of API compatible with Hadoop, but uh, much more performant, 
then uh, there's lots of applications and uh, and uh, and companies that would be interested in this type of uh, performance advantage. So yeah, has, has, yeah, this, has this thesis kind of played out the way you thought? Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think if you look at any any the number one number one bottleneck in your data center is I/O. Number one bottleneck. I mean, big data is big storage first, and then big compute. Well, also, the, for, I guess and, and, I guess the moving files around between nodes, right? So the networking, but then people yeah, the so- networking too, right? But 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 the management and the performance is, I and mean, if you want big compute to run well. Right, you schedule the big compute on where the data is, which is what Hadoop does. But then, when it runs to run fast, it has to be delivered very quickly. Otherwise, your programs keep waiting for data. And when we deliver data at these speeds, everything goes faster in your company or in your data center. Everything becomes better. Right. So these data rates, I mean, these have been proven across many, many companies. Right. So, for example, I'll give you a very striking example of of this is one of our customers, American Express. Uh, about a year ago, publicly showed a, you know, where they uh, benchmarked the TerraSort benchmark on MapR. TerraSort is a benchmark where you have to sort a billion, sorry, 10 billion records of 100 bytes each. That's about terabyte data. 10 billion records have to be arranged in ascending or descending order. This is a benchmark conceived a long time ago by uh, Jim Gray, who is the father of databases. The record held previously was at uh, Yahoo, Yahoo sorted you know this one 10 billion records in about 62 seconds, but they had to use a network of 2,200 computers to do that. Uh, Mapar, uh, sorry, American Express, using just vanilla Mapar that we ship as a product. Remember, Yahoo did this in their labs. It's just a lab special. You cannot repeat this very easily outside Yahoo. Versus American Express, just took a standard product from Mapar, nothing lab special. There's no special build here. They ran it on only 300 servers. And they beat that benchmark and brought it down to 45 seconds. So they sorted the 10 billion records in 45 seconds as compared to 62 seconds by Yahoo. Uh, the, uh, the, Spark, the Spark guys have something similar, right? No, no, Spark. I'll come to Spark a little okay. bit. Right? Spark hasn't done a TerraSort. They've only done a PetaSort. Oh, okay. Right, right. So what I'm trying to get here is that the goal of what MapR was, which is to make the Yahoo kind of technology available to standard companies like American Express uh, and, and be able to run this kind of stuff at extraordinary speed, right? I mean, look at the factor of savings that you have when you go from 2,200 servers right. to just 300 servers. And this is publicly stated by both companies. This is not MapR doing it. Uh, and, and there is where you see, has this worked out well? I think it's worked out very well because companies like American Express or Walmart or other companies are now being able to harness what was previously just the preview of companies like Yahoo and Google and Facebook. Right? So they can run this at that scale and at that speed without having to hire an army of engineers uh, in order to maintain the software. You and know, so, I, the, the other thing that's interesting is that uh, you guys started out with this uh, file system, which always had this stellar reputation, uh, but you've continued to add on to your yes. uh, platform, right? So, and I was commenting before we actually uh, started recording is I really like the way you guys have positioned this new platform because it's so much simpler and cleaner. So you have kind of a data layer and a processing layer. So in the data layer, you've got your file system, uh, which is, I guess, the equivalent of what the people in the Hadoop community would be the, their data lake, right? So, and then you have, you have uh, MapRDB, which uh, we can talk about in a second. 
but also uh, a very new addition called MapR Streams for event streaming. So tell me a little bit about uh, uh, MapR Streams and uh, why you felt like you had to uh, uh, build your own kind of uh, messaging platform and not use something like Kafka. Yeah, very good question. So uh, we actually got, so at MapR, we don't build anything if there's something already available publicly that somebody can use and uh, no, it works very well. So we don't, we don't, there's no need to build something like, for example, we're not going to go and build an Apache web server. It works very well. Kafka works very well. But Kafka, the problem we heard was over and over again, a couple of things. Number one, it's, uh, it can lose data on, on when, you know, under load. It can lose data. Number one. Number two, it wasn't really designed for multiple data centers, like running data centers worldwide. So let's go to number one. Right. So mm-hmm. number so that uh, number one, people will say, well, that's fine, but uh, the MapR people should have just helped the Kafka people get rid of number one. Yes and no. I mean, yes and no. There's fundamental issues about why um, why this is the case, right? I mean, so one of the main issues is that uh, when Kafka you know, takes a, when when you send a message to Kafka, it replies to the sender or the the publisher and then replicates it to the other nodes. Right. And MapR, on the other hand, uh, replicates first before replying to the publisher. That's a very crucial difference. And to make that work very fast, we need to replace the, the, the RPC system in the in Kafka has to be substantially improved. Firstly, it has to be lightning fast. Right, right. You have to be capable of doing RPCs in parallel at a very large scale. So think about if you have a million producers all writing into Kafka and the million RPCs, you know, this, this million requests have to be now suddenly triplicated very quickly, right? So we need a way to bundle RPCs together and batch them and so on based on destination and not use a million threads. Like Kafka's model is threaded. So you end up using a million threads and that's not sustainable really. So the fundamental architecture is a problem. And so we would have to rewrite that part of Kafka. Right, right, right. Number one, like number two, um, Today, you can run Kafka in a synchronous mode, right? In a synchronous mode, you can say, all right, let me replicate first before I reply to the publisher. When Kafka does that, its performance drops by almost a factor of 10, right? So yes, you can run reliably with Kafka, but then at that point, it becomes very slow, number one. Number two, Kafka still has to worry about things like what happens if a disk fails? What happens if the server fails? What happens if I add a new node to the cluster? What happens when I, you know, do I automatically re- rebuild the disk when, when disk is added? Those things have not been really uh, engineered in Kafka. It just says, let Linux do that. And so those are points of significant uh, interest to people who are deploying this in a large scale. Uh, because when you deploy things in a large scale, disks go bad very frequently. Right. And I and guess for a company a, like MapR that uh, is supporting many enterprise-grade customers now, you get, you've folks probably wanted to move faster in terms of... Uh, That's right. We would have to now engineer this part also into Kafka, right? So it's kind of like overall the RPC, overall the threading model, overall the the disk handling, overall the you know the cluster management where you have to add a node or remove a node, uh, uh, re-replication and so on. So that meant like it's a significant re-engineering of Kafka. And so we said, well, you know, we can do that. But a lot of these problems we already solved on the file system side and in the DB side. We solved this 
you know, this repair issue. We saw the RPC is lightning fast. We cannot get 10 gigabytes a second unless we are lightning fast. We have solved the problem of, you know, adding removing nodes from a cluster transfer into. Why can't we just leverage that directly? Right. So, uh, so that's what we did. So what about this? Uh, uh, and so, yeah, you're right. Absolutely right, Ben. It's moving fast. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. Important. Yeah. What about uh, multiple data centers? Is that something that people really ask for? Yes, actually, it's very common now. Very, very common. Uh, we have many customers who have, uh, for, for example, I'll give you a very simple example, ad serving market, right? ad serving in anywhere has a limit of about 80 milliseconds or, or 70 to 80 milliseconds where uh, you have to reply to a, an advertisement or so. So when you click on, let's say, a web page, the banner ads and the, you know, the ads on the side and the bottom have to be responded within 80 milliseconds. So people place data centers across the world near each of the major centers where there's a lot of people. There's a lot of activity. So many of our customers have data centers in Japan, in China, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in India, in, in Russia, in uh, Germany, or uh, and across the United States, and so on. So worldwide. However, the billing is typically consolidated. So they bring data from all these data centers into central data centers where they process uh, process the entire click, click stream and understand, you know, uh, how to build it back to the to their customers. And the problem for them is they need adjacent data centers to fail over to each other, right? So, for example, if my data center in uh, uh, Japan fails, maybe the data center in Hong Kong can take over. I cannot fail the Japan data center and say that the data center in Germany take over. It violates the 60 or 70 milliseconds time budget that they have, right? So, they also need data center affinity failover. Like, so a data center in Germany can take over for a data center, let's say, in Amsterdam or a data center in Canada, Canada can take over for a data center in the United States. But you know, they have to be near each other. So those are some of the considerations. And uh, then they needed a clean way to bring these click streams back into, into the central data centers, maybe running in the US or in Japan or Germany or somewhere, where the consolidation or in the overall view of the customer is created. Typically, this has been done uh, by running completely independent Kafka systems in each of the places. And what happens as soon as that happens is the, the producers and consumers are not coordinated across data centers. So think about a data center in Japan that has a Kafka cluster running. Well, it cannot fail over to the Kafka cluster in Hong Kong because that's a completely independent cluster and doesn't understand what has been consumed and what has been produced in Japan. So if a consumer that was consuming things from the Japanese Kafka move to the Hong Kong Kafka, they would, you know, they would get garbage. And then this is the main problem that a lot of, a lot of customers ask us to solve. They said, this is a really, really hard problem. Now, if I bring it to today's context, which is in the IoT or the Internet of Things scale, right? We are seeing clusters. So the, the data sources have now gone not into a few data centers, but in the millions of data centers. Think about every self-driving car. Every self-driving car is a data center in itself. It generates so much data. Think about a plane flying, right? A plane flying is a full data center. There's 400 people on the plane, the captive audience, and there's enough data generated just for the preventive maintenance kind of stuff on the plane anyway. Think about a cruise ship going or a cargo ship moving or a submarine going into, into the water for like two months and then coming back. Those are all data centers in their own right. And so the number of data centers is now seeing a massive amount of explosion in the millions. And trying to make a million data centers work with each other in a seamless way, where they are automatically connecting, disconnecting, reconnecting, and disconnecting, and so on, 
uh, we needed to do something on the techno on the back end side to make this possible. And so that's the thinking behind map our streams. Right. Is that what do we need for the Internet of Things scale? Where we have we are pretty much in the next five years, we're going to see Hadoop clusters almost everywhere inside the trunk of a car or inside you know a, a truck that goes into the desert for you a few know, days I, and comes I, back. As I'm listening to you, and I look at kind of this uh, data portion of your stack, the so-called utility-grade platform services, and you and you kind of rattle off some of these enterprise features like uh, running across data centers, high availability, fault tolerance, security. So these are things that you guys probably built, uh, first of all, in the first part of that, uh, the first component of that layer, which is the file system, and mm-hmm. then continues to inform whatever you add to, that, uh, to your data services, correct? Correct, yeah. So... The streams is not really built on the file system, although it shares a lot of the data. No, no, but I mean, uh, the, these features inform what you what you know to be essential to enterprise. Yes, absolutely. Very well put. I think that's a perfect statement. And so the, the learnings that you've learned from the file system uh, translate over to, okay, if we're going to build a messaging platform, it has to have these features. Right. And, and you know, the difference between a file system and a file system is very passive, right? I mean, you write some files, read some files. I mean, how interesting could that get? But if I look at a streaming system, what, we, what we're looking for is completely real-time. That is, if a publisher publishes something, then all listeners who want to listen to what the publisher is saying will get notified within like five milliseconds inside the same data center. Five milliseconds, they get a notification saying, hey, I'm, you know, this was published. Instantaneous almost. And if I say cross data center, let's say, you know, across, let's say I have a data center halfway across the world, and you publish something, let's say in Japan, then the person in South Africa or somewhere can get that information in under a second. They'll be notified of that. You know, it's a push that we do, so they get notified of it under a second at at a scale that's you know, billions of messages per second. Right. So it's really designed at at a. So yes, there's a lot of similar technology. So we have learned from Kafka, we have learned from Dipco, we have learned from Rabbit and Q and so many other technologies that have preceded us. I mean, we're not something we kind of, you know, dreamt us up by ourselves. We've learned a lot from watching all those things and they've paved the way for us. Now taking it to the next level, which is what we really need for IoT. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, as I, uh, as I uh, am preparing for this panel that we're going to be on uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, That's you right. look at the, a typical streaming application, right? You, you, uh, you and MapBar seem to have filled in all of the, uh, things you need to build the streaming application. You need a messaging platform. Uh, you need a stream processing framework of some kind. Uh, and you need places to land your data. It could be uh, uh, MapRDB or even the file system. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so, very interestingly, uh, yeah, and one more thing actually, which I should add to that, right? So absolutely. Uh, on top of this, really what we have done very innovative also is we did Apache Drill. Right. right so Apache Drill is a SQL engine, SQL engine. And SQL really is the, lang- the universal language for data processing. Really it is, right? And what we have done with Apache Drill and streams and DB is you can query data that's in the streams, in the queues, while it's, being, while it's moving on the fly. So you can, take, you can join data in the streams and in the queues with data in MapRDB or data in Hive or data in... Uh, in the file system or data somewhere else, maybe in Mongo or Cassandra, and join that to see, hey, for example, you know, I have these credit card transactions that are still pending. 
is there fraud going on? Can I join that to see with my current data? Yeah, it's hey, basically hey. you're uh, you're taking something a stream and then contextualizing it, right? So yes, yes, this is very new, which nobody has done before, right? I mean, mostly streams have been opaque. Like if you look at Kafka, it's an opaque system where publisher consumer deal with it and Kafka. So these are basically uh, streaming joins in a, in in a sense, right? So. But 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 they don't they don't consume the data when they when you do the join. It's it's a query. Right. 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 So you can you can examine what's in the queues. You can examine the data in those messages. And so I think you. I mean, I believe you can do that with Spark SQL too, right? So and uh, using Spark streaming. Uh, so Spark streaming is, I would say, like a hundred times slower because Spark is really a batch. System. Micro. It's a micro batch. It's not it's a. a it's not it's a, really one, a It's not a one record at a time. It's yeah, not event. So, it's not, it's, not, it's, it's not event event based. It's actually you know you, you wait until there's a sufficient number of records gathered together, then you run a map reduce. Spark essentially still is map reduce. So there's a standard. So there's a there's a class of applications that you can use it for, but it doesn't work for all applications. Yeah, for, for real uh, but, time. But, but but Spark is complementary to what we're doing with MapPerson. It's completely complementary. So Correct. you can think of Spark as a CEP engine, right? The the what do you call the Complex event, event processing, processing engine. Yeah. Yes, the event processing engine. We are the event transport engine. So MapR Streams is the event transport engine, and Spark Streaming would be the event processing engine, where you want to take a bunch of those and aggregate it and give it some meaning. So you're right. Spark Streaming and Apache Drill are kind of similar but kind of different, right? So the one thing that we haven't quite talked about is MapRDB. So uh, talk about MapRDB at a high level. So MapRDB came out of uh, another need where uh, we had a lot of requests to say, you know, we want to get off of Oracle, uh, but we want that kind of reliability. And we want, and, and, you know, MySQL and other databases like Postgres don't do it because the scale is very large. So we want very large scale, much so more than Oracle it, it sound, scale. So it sounds like uh, you're talking transactions then here. Yes, we are talking transactions. And we're talking... Uh, uh, you know, at very large scale, but the kind of what I would call system of record kind of reliability, where you're, you can put bank transactions, you can put uh, land records, you can put HIPAA, you know, uh, which is healthcare information, patient records, clinical records, all of those into a database. And it's ultra reliable and ultra fast and extremely scalable. Scale out. Scale up and scale out. So per node, we can do about 100,000 transactions a second, and we can do, you know, across thousands of servers. So can you use MapRDB for some of these time series event data applications? Absolutely. A lot, a lot of customers are absolutely using that. So then uh, uh, high, throughput, high, and, high yeah. throughput inserts and... Very high throughput inserts. I mean, we, we did this for a oil exploration company where they were getting sensor data from their instruments that they lower into the oil wells. And there we're getting data at the rate of 100 million data points a second. So I guess, I guess uh, the one question, as I look at uh, what you guys have done on the data storage side, uh, do I need three clusters? One for the MapRFS, one for MapRDB? Yeah, so, so very, very good, very good, <laughs> very good point, right? Very good, very good leading question. Thank you for that, which I should get to. Yeah. Uh, so our approach at MapR has been really what we call the converged data uh, platform. What do I mean by that? Or what do we mean by that is this. Today, if you have to do uh, build this kind of new data center in your back 
in your uh, for your back end you have to it's kind of a do it yourself you buy you know you go and get hadoop from somebody you and get go and get some storage from somebody else go and get no sql from somebody else or a database from somebody else get a sql engine from somebody else get a streaming solution from somebody else again and how about search well that's somewhere someone else again no sql from somebody else so you end up doing six or seven or eight clusters before you put together a data pipeline that you know actually meaningful for you so our convert data pipeline we we have this request from a lot of customers is that look we have we basically have eight clusters or so to manage each one of them has different set of characteristics different failover methods administration is different uh, it's really tiresome we have to get different hardware for each one and uh, they're all being under underutilized all the hardware and we now have eight or 10 people when we really need two people so the converged data appliance uh, the converged data platform uh, idea is that we have a database we have a file system we have a streaming engine data can move transparently between them but they are really different skins of the same underlying data platform which is really one set of tools to manage to administer one cluster to run and you can run this cluster with one person and you get all of this functionality without having to uh, second guess saying okay which one is appropriate for and trying to do connectors between all these clusters so what's right. uh, so what how do you guys do research management i, I didn't follow that so how, so what is uh, what's your uh, scheduler resource manager is it mesos oh yeah yeah so resource management um, there are two very good ones out there right uh, one is yarn and yarn is particularly well suited for hadoop workloads like mapreduce hive and so on and then there's uh, uh, another scheduler out there called mesos which is very well suited for everything else except mapreduce and so uh, we offer both uh, each has its strengths and its weaknesses and uh, in order to bridge the gap between the two because today uh, that's been a problem we started this open source project called myriad which is uh, basically you know being able to run hadoop as a subcluster on, under mesos so mesos would be the master scheduler and myriad enables yarn to run under, under mesos i knew there's always a reason i i know there's always a reason why you guys do all of these projects <laughs> that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah i mean you know what it's it's very unlikely that everybody everything in the world is going to go and program to yarn right, right. Uh, and so mesos doesn't require you to program to mesos it, it can handle anything so all the non hadoop workloads that make up probably for any enterprises actually 99% of the workload mesos is more suitable but as you introduce hadoop you don't have to obsolete mesos you keep it and you add hadoop to mesos and so that's the thinking there so the the this converged data platform right so you have one cluster that runs uh these three different things um uh, it's just so it's got what you're saying is it's got into the point you guys have made it simple enough that uh typical enterprise uh can do all of this with a much smaller team and uh, the amount of training for running these clusters has also been reduced yeah it's it's i would call it it's a we take it on the shortest path from you know shortest path to making money from your data when you put it that way right uh in the sense that uh it's a straight line from hey here's my data to can i start processing it and and getting some insights and making some money out of it and you install it you go uh we also offer a lot of uh, what we call quick starts where our professional services will help you with quick starts where typical like recommendation engine or security log processing or uh, various things like that we can help you get going try it out see if you like it 
and see if you're, you know, this is something that's monetizable for you and uh, adds to your top line. And if you're a, and, and if you're a large enterprise mm-hmm. uh, where many many different groups might use uh, the same uh, technologies, so what about multi-tenancy? That's right. Uh, very well put. Um, so the so the other thing what we what we find is there's many approaches to doing multi-tenancy. Right? One approach is let me run for each. And by the way, uh, by the way, Srivast, the dirty secret is a lot of these technologists that we talk about <laughs> have a hard time with multi-tenancy. That's right. They all have a hard time with multi-tenancy because it has to be really thought of from ground up. When you do multi-tenancy, it has to be it has to be across your CPUs, across your disks, across your networking, across your scheduling, and across everything. Right? Across how you lay out data. So right from the ground up, you have to build this in. So we we built multi-tenancy in from day one. But uh, what it lets you do again is avoid a cluster sprawl. Where you, you know one way to do the obvious way to do multi-tenancy is to have dedicated hardware for each tenant and dedicated clusters. And everybody knows that you know, results in very poor utilization and it's very expensive and requires more and more people to manage and run it. And so what we do is multi-tenancy, truly multi-tenancy in the sense that we can guarantee SLAs for different applications or different copies of the same application on the same cluster with different sets of data and uh, manage it as if it's one cluster or manage it as if it is many clusters. Right. So the hardware to software mapping is very flexible and we can meet, you know, different kinds of uh, multi-tenancy requirements within that. I mean, when I say multi-tenancy, it's not one thing. It's actually so many different aspects of multi-tenancy come in when you, when you run uh, in an enterprise, right? Uh, so we kind of let you do all of that, right? We have, we have very, so multi-tenancy is very important. Uh, even the security in multi-tenancy is very important where the ability to delegate security to your tenants and let them manage it themselves is also very important. That's some of the things we have pioneered, which are just not there in a lot of the curve distributions. So we've talked about kind of Spark and MapReduce type processing, uh, SQL with Drill. Uh, what about Search? Search is one of these things that uh, I think people sometimes yeah. under, underappreciate, right? Because in many, in some cases, the first thing you do with your data when you first get it is play around with it using Search. That's right. I mean, search is, you know, <laughs> my background is from Google, so search is very near and dear to me. Right? In fact, I worked on search in Google. Uh, so Lucene is a very good set of, so both Solar and uh, Elasticsearch, which are built on Lucene, are pretty good. So uh, we, so what we've done instead is integrate with those, with both Lucene and Solar in MapR, and integrate at a very deep level. Right? So... Uh, so I'll give you many, many ways of integration. So for example... So, oh, so here's a question. Why not? Uh, so a lot of people feel that uh, if they can just use, uh, if they can have a tool that can do both search and SQL. And that's exactly what we're doing. In fact, if you look at what Apache Drill's roadmap is, and there's a Jira that we've been working on since last October, is basically using search as an index for your other data right. through Drill. Right. So you can run a SQL query. The SQL, the, uh, with Drill, you can say, hey, my index for my data. So let's say my data is in flat files. And you can say, by the way, I wanted to index it. So I put some indexes in Elasticsearch. Use that as the index and then query my data. And Drill can do that automatically. Or you can put the data in MapRDB and say, here are some indexes sitting in Elasticsearch. Use that as a secondary index or tertiary and, and or many secondary indexes and use that as data to join. So from Apache Drill, we have done the query integration. From the bottom, from the data flow perspective, 
we've done uh, integration where if you insert data into MapRDB or insert, bring data into the files, it automatically gets pushed into Elasticsearch and gets indexed there. So the whole system looks like one integrated uh, query system. It's using Elasticsearch, so it's lightning fast, but it's really bringing together these three different technologies, drill, DB, and Elasticsearch together in one seamless kind of uh, view. I mean, a, a, a very good way to think about it is this way, right? Let's say you have a database with 10 indexes. You can probably use any database. But let's say you have a database with 10,000 indexes. Now you need what we're building, which is Elasticsearch with, uh, with Drill using that automatically. Right, right. Because you cannot do that with the traditional methods. You know, um, the other thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about is cloud computing, right? So you look at uh, the rapid growth, not just in AWS, but also Google Cloud and Azure. Yeah. Um, so it seems like enterprises are a lot more open to putting some of what they do on the cloud. Uh, maybe not all of it, certainly analytics. So the cloud, I guess, is also another path towards building these data applications. But if you're willing to, for example, piece together components from uh, these public cloud providers. So what are you hearing from enterprises about cloud computing? Well, so cloud is so important. Cloud is very important because of many, many things, right? Number one um, is it gives you universal access, right? Think about uh, you know, I think almost every company's business today, at least 10% is coming online. Uh, and uh, some companies are completely online. Uh, even for MapR, so for example, at MapR, you know, if, if people want to uh, download our bits, those are actually hosted in the cloud so that you can have you know, d dynamic bandwidth expansion or decrease. You don't have to purchase everything up front. Right. Because let's say there's a sudden burst of 20 people downloading, right? We only pay for that when they download, you know, when those 20 people download, right? So even though we have we have our own computers, we keep this in the cloud because we need the burst capability, right? In different senses. The other big challenge that's happening with uh, challenge that a lot of companies are facing is they're really truly global, and different com different countries in the world are putting down borders on data. They are saying that you can, our our data cannot leave our international borders. Right? So if you have a company that's operating in let's say six countries, then the data from those the data generated in those six countries have to stay inside the borders of those countries. Now, you can sit down and say, okay, I'm going to build my own data center in six countries, or you can say, I'm going to go to a cloud provider in each of those countries. And voila, it becomes a cloud provider's responsibility to make sure that the data stays within the country's borders, right? The privacy laws and so on are, so regulation is also causing a lot of um, cloud movement. And so now that gives me the elasticity, right? So if I want to start up a, data center, let's say, you know, today in Germany and tomorrow in Timbuktu, well, I can go to and find a cloud provider in Timbuktu who will give me uh, a data center there in a matter of a few hours. So it's it's makes me very agile. I don't have to go and purchase everything up front because I don't know how much my business in Timbuktu is going to be. I know I have some business. As it grows, I can add capacity. And uh, I can do this without having to hire the personnel, understanding the tax laws and doing all of that buying real estate and or renting real estate, renting machines, importing machines, and all that nonsense is taken care of. So a company like MapR, then you make your software available in this cloud, a uh, public cloud environment so that your customers can access it. But uh, I guess the question is, uh, uh, many of these public cloud providers are starting to build uh, data components, big data components, similar to uh, what uh, 
uh, we on the the outside are doing that. Right, right. So Redshift and, uh, for example, at Amazon or uh, Kinesis Kinesis or BigQuery at uh, Google. Dataflow for Google, right? Yeah, data flow for Google. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they are trying to just, you know, they are trying to provide their value add when you use their cloud. Like, I mean, they, they're trying to show why is their cloud better than the other clouds because they have these extra features. Right. Uh, Haroop is really a standard, right? And we really believe in doing standard stuff. So you might want to think about, you know, if you use cloud number one, are you going to get locked into their cloud? And can you move to cloud number two? It seems like lo- lock, locking has two, uh, Facets, right? One is the data. You have to move your data from one format to another, but also the API. <laughs> so, yeah, the API is very different in each of these situations. Right. The data formats are also very different. I mean, data that's in uh, in Redshift format is probably not in Kinesis format, and data that's in Kinesis format is not in Hadoop format. Right? So, data formats are extremely important because then you're back to ETL again. And also, actually, the, there's another thing, which is the... Uh, your engineers, right? So, because there's architectural considerations for doing things in the cloud. That's right. Hiring is a problem because how many people know Kinesis versus how many people know Hadoop? Or just even designing uh, data applications, very different in the cloud. For 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 example, um, you might have these transient clusters, right? So everything is in S3, and then uh, you have transient clusters that do that hit S3 and do certain things. Right? Yeah, I think I think that is. I think you bring up an important point, but I think that's more cost based rather than, uh, that's a cost-based decision rather than a strategic decision, right? In the sense that, that that decision can change tomorrow based on if something becomes cheaper. Right. right. I think the other things you mentioned earlier, like Kinesis and Redshift and BigQuery and uh, Dataflow, those are strategic decisions. Because if you take that decision, your, all your programs, everything, your Dataflow pipeline depends on it. Right. And it's very hard to move that pipeline anywhere else. And it's right. a lot of, there's a lot of investment done in that, those pipelines. It becomes very expensive to change. And they're, uh, so and they're, and they're different enough. Uh, let's just look at the three cloud providers. They're all quite different, right? So if you commit to one and you change your mind. No, I, at, at, at many, many, many places, they are the same. And many, well, cloud, so the cloud. Well, no, no, in terms, of, in terms of that, right? In terms of actually, if you, once you get into the details of building something. That's right. I mean, the networking is usually very different right. in each case, right? How you set up your private networks and all that. Uh, I think they've done a good job of trying to actually be very similar to each other because they know that this is a, I mean, I mean, it's their own reasons for not being proprietary. That is, you know, their, their argument is, hey, come to our cloud, it's exactly the same. If you don't like us, you can leave anytime, it's still exactly the same, right? right. So they are trying to do that, actually. I, I don't think it's deliberate, right, where, where they're trying to lock you in or something. I so think it's just it, that. it sounds like what you're saying is if you're an enterprise, right, so separate cloud computing, the infrastructure of cloud computing from the actual components of the cloud providers. That's right. That's right. right. So exactly. Exactly. Very well. Separate the data components from the infrastructure components. Now, what cloud does bring is enormous scale at very low prices for the infrastructure components. Uh, not for the data components, but the, for the infrastructure components. And you will not be able to match that by buying this hardware yourself. Right? The cloud will prevent you from getting obsolete because you will have the latest hardware, latest infrastructure continuously. And if you do it on-prem, you will be behind eventually. And you won't have the kind of expertise and the networking strength or the security expertise that the cloud provider has. So is this something that you're hearing from enterprises or is this something you're advising enterprises? 
Oh, both. I'm hearing both. I mean, it's kind of a mixture. Right? You learn from your customers. I mean, the people who actually use it are the most knowledgeable. So many of our customers are in the cloud and they're very knowledgeable. They tell us these things. We are also using cloud in our own way. So we have our, our opinion and our view of the cloud from MapR, but we also have our customers' opinions and view of the cloud. And they are, they'll give a much broader opinion than what we can do with, with our own usage. But there's also the, the, the fact that cloud isn't cheap, right? Storage, no, yes and no. storage and compute, etc. No, I, I think I think that's it's a matter of perspective, right? When it's cheap or not. So I think the example where I gave you, you want to open data centers. Oh yeah, 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 that, yeah, yeah. Which one is cheaper, right? Right. But then you say, okay, I've been running this for a while. I want to get data out of there and hold data for ten years. Then uh, you got to look at which is cheaper for you because it can become. Um, you know, I, I think there's still a problem, right? It, it's kind of, okay, I want to hold data for 10 years, but what am I going to do with this data? Am I going to put it on tapes, right? put it away, or am I going to be querying this, or am I going to be... Uh, I'll give you a very stark example that happened after the financial meltdown in the 2008-2009 timeframe, 2007, right? Uh, I was talking to a big bank, and they were a big Wall Street bank, and uh, they were fined actually uh, $3 billion or something dollars. And, and why were they were fined? And this is the chief data officer telling me this. He said that, look, when, when this financial crisis hit and AIG was bailed out, we as a bank were told to turn over all our transactions that we had, we had had with AIG for the last 10 years, every transaction. We had billions of transactions. I mean, every day, you know, we have over 10,000 touch points with this insurance company, and we have so many transactions with it. And that on a daily basis, we have so many transactions. And uh, we were given six months to comply, to turn over all of this. The problem for us was that, uh, you know, six months, we, we had this data on tapes. We were trying to locate the tapes, and we couldn't find one tape. Ten years ago, who thought we would need it? And, uh, you know, usually we keep for seven years. We didn't keep for ten years. And uh, we searched and searched, and finally, end of six months, we went to the judge and said, look, we can't find it. The judge didn't believe us and find us $3 billion. What we would have liked to do is found this data within a day and spend the next six months analyzing what, you know, how, how the bank is exposed instead of simply searching right. for it. Right. right? Uh, and so the, so the cost of not finding and not analyzing was almost infinite, right? $3 billion is almost an infinite amount of money. And uh, so they are saying, well, you know, what was more costly? So, so the cloud brings you that opportunity to keep that amount of data, 10 years of data, in an accessible way in S3 or right. Google Drive. Or, or Google one of Google. these, uh, whatever it is, the, yeah. cheap, the cheaper. Uh, yeah, but in, but in an in a online way. Right. right? right. It's still online right? at very low cost. So you would think then that would be cheaper than trying to do it yourself. Right. right. Uh, so so uh, I guess in closing, so we, uh, MapR was founded when again? 2009? 2009. So yep. it seems like, so now we're at 2016. You guys have simplified the infrastructure quite a bit. Um, but we, we still find ourselves talking a lot about infrastructure instead of applications. <laughs> instead of applications, you know what I mean? So, Srivast, at what point do we start really talking about applications? How many more years? I think, so we are an infrastructure company. It's very unlikely we'll ever go into applications, right? We do, like I said earlier, we do. No, no, but you're products. starting to empower people, right? So to, right. to so, easily so, build so, applications. So, so, but, you know, hold on. So let me finish the statement, right? Yeah. So I'm saying that we will, 
unlikely to we are unlikely to go into applications but at the same time we are doing exactly that right. which is we have I, I mentioned this quick start stuff earlier which we are uh, now selling which is really a bunch of 60% done applications oh, applications are done 60 to 70% at mapr and then for you example, customize it engine. and then you can customize it for you for yourself when you when you, you know and these are we give it away for free actually we just give it away with some consulting with some uh, professional services we give the source code away so these are things like recommendation engines or data warehouse offload or security log analysis and there's probably another three, three or four of there you know, some financial risk management that's what i'm talking stuff. about right there the right? beginnings right. the beginnings right, right the beginnings of that right. and we are doing that uh, because we you're absolutely right i mean applications is what people want finally yeah at and the end of the day uh, they they're running a business right another day they want to there's an application where they're going to make money out of the data and infrastructure is nice but it's just a means to the end right uh, and uh, so we are so we're moving there now and uh, i think i think there's there's a long way to go there because the world itself is changing around us right i mean right. uh the if you went to the consumer electronics show this uh, january like last week or a couple of weeks ago the amount of virtual reality kind of stuff that's going on and the stuff that's right. happening with the gopro cameras and digitization of everything and the gaming you know re- it's reality meeting meeting gaming actually. right right almost the gaming experience is being, is being brought to everyday life and by the uh, way uh, uh sometimes here in the bay area in the us we're kind of us and europe focused but man there's a lot of amazing things happening in asia south asia right absolutely absolutely i mean i'm from india and there's amazing things happening there i mean it's it's just the empowerment that's happening at the at the grassroots level yeah and think things that actually maybe out here we kind of uh, have moved on from from but are massively uh, disruptive there now for example e-commerce right massively uh, big activity in asia absolutely i mean i mean uh, e-commerce is completely self owned based completely mobile exactly yeah, yeah 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 right? yeah and uh, it's not in fact uh, a lot of mobile companies are moving into telco is moving into uh, banking because of that because the prepaid sim card is actually like a security deposit or 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 like a bank account uh, so actually and, now and, now that you say that i mean this uh, investment into mapr streams is going to pay off <laughs> we are just very small fry compared to how much i mean yeah, there's yeah, still yeah. some serious problems to be solved like you know just daily electricity and water right and right right clean water and uh, you know even food like even, even uh, hunger is not there yet. Right. so but i i think we're enable enabling various things i mean um, i'll give you a very stark example of that we implemented this thing called aadhaar in oh, india oh yeah that's right the, the, the identity the, project the identity project and it's linked to your banking your uh, hospital admissions you know all the records whether it's school admissions hospital admissions even airport entry passport everything pension payments so this project uh, is it, done Uh, this project is done it's 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 implemented there's about a billion people online right now there's another 300 million to go but what what i wanted to point out was it's completely digitized right right if you want to withdraw money from an atm you put your fingerprint in it and take the money out you don't need a card it's kind of gone that way right right you don't need a banking card now what's happened is there was a flood in uh, chennai in uh, last uh, in uh, oh recently november december massive right. floods yeah 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 I mean this rained like it's never rained for it rained continuously for 2 months and the houses were submerged in 10 feet of water people lost everything right i mean that entire tamil nadu state in india people lost like livelihood everything they lost right, right. all but when they were rescued they still had their fingerprints right and they could access everything their bank accounts their records and everything 
because the Aadhaar project led them, uh, because it was, it was biometric based. Right. And so it really, they lost everything, but they still had everything, right? I mean, they could get to everything right away. Think about what happens here if you lose your wallet. I mean, you're like seriously in trouble. Right? Right. All your credit cards, your driver's license, everything. Right, right. And you don't have that kind of an issue anymore. Huh. That, that, was, that, that problem was solved. That's amazing. So, so that's pretty amazing. I think I've heard requests from many other countries, uh, to both in Asia and Africa and South America, to implement a similar scheme. But oh, it so requires the government what, what, to role, what role did MAPAR play in that project? So that entire uh, biometric database is actually running on MAPAR. Oh, amazing. That's uh, amazing. In, in four data centers, uh, in, uh, running on MAPARDB. And this is what I talk about, saying, you know, being system of record and being able to replace Oracle. So how okay. long do you have to wait when they scan your fingerprints? <laughs> so it, I mean, basically you queue up and within uh, 10 minutes you get a ID card. Oh, I see. Wow. Right. And then the response time is 100 milliseconds anywhere in the world. Wow. That's amazing. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, excuse me, anywhere in India. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think they are looking at even, you know, getting rid of visas and passports because of this. Once they have this, it's biometric based. I don't need a visa or a passport. I already know who you are. Yeah, so this is the right. basically this this is you know the this is the foundation of uh, many other applications. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a foundation for your universal identity, right? Who you are, and it's verifiable, right? And it and and it's backed by the government, which means if you're going into, let's say, you're entering uh, Mexico or entering the United States from India, you come to the United States, and the United States government can say, all right, here's your fingerprint, give it to Aadhaar. Aadhaar will tell you who this person is, what's the history, and everything, so that you don't have to worry about. Uh, you know, is this really an Indian or not? Right. The government is telling you that. Ah. In, right. So those kinds of things. So they're looking at even doing kind of extending it that far. That's great. Well, and similar to your global entry that you're doing in today. Oh, in the, the US. Yeah, yeah, global yeah, entry yeah. is exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, it's always good talking to you. And it's, uh, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate kind of this, uh, kind of meandering tour through history, the <laughs> present and the ending in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Always a pleasure to work with you and it was a great conversation. You can follow MC Srivas on Twitter at MC Srivas. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.